one man or one body in Jesus Christ. About being one man. Usually when I think, just to be honest, about the body of Christ, I typically think of like a bunch of little bodies coming together to make one body. Does anyone else think of things like that? When you hear the phrase one body, one man. And what we're going to talk about is being one man in Messiah. I want everybody to say one man. man. Talking about a human. Say in Messiah. Messiah. You know, I'm I'm going to say the phrase in Messiah a couple of times today. Did you know every time uh, when we're reading through Ephesians and we see the, the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It tends to put on this, this, this Greek spin to what's being said. And the whole theme about what we're talking is about being in Messiah. It's important to know as we begin in chapter uh, 1, we got through two verses last week, we're going to get through many more this week. We're talking about Messiah. We're going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite subjects ne- next to baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit, about Israelology, about Israel's role in salvation, about our, our being grafted in, Gentiles being grafted into that. And we're going to start, but we need to, to understand the concept of Messiah. Messiah is a Jewish concept. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It's the concept of God sending a person to bring salvation. Messiah. So every time we read through this passage and we read in Christ, I want you to think of in Messiah, in Messiah, in Messiah. There's something else I want to point out uh, about what we're going to be reading. Uh, I want you to pay attention to the pronouns that are being used as we go through the text. This has been one of the most uh, twisted texts in the word uh, that we see that promote different doctrines of election and predestination that I think and I believe with all my heart actually aren't what the word of God teaches, especially in dealing with Israel. Everybody ready? Come on. Is everybody ready? All right, let's go. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read through uh, verse 3 through 12, and then we're going to break it down, all right? How many people like to write things down? You like to take notes? All right, I'm going to give you all three points of the message right now, right? Because then you can just listen. You ready for the three points? I'm talking about how do we become, how do we uh, engage in being one body, one man, literally one person in Christ. Here it is. We celebrate blessings. Write that down. If your neighbor's not writing it down, write it down for them, maybe in their Bible. Celebrate blessings. Raise up equals. And destroy hostility. That's what we're going to talk about. How do we become one effective man or human or person or body in Messiah? Well, we celebrate blessings, we raise up equals, and we destroy hostility. And we're going to work through these three things right now. Here we go. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, remember, think in Messiah, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know that you've been blessed in Messiah with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? I'm going to explain how that works in a second. And as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we 
thrown out, should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. I'm going to read the first three words of 13. It says, in him, you. There's a distinction. This is what we're going to talk about, that the first part that we read in Ephesians chapter 1 is actually a Jewish blessing. It is a Jewish benediction. This is something uh, that would have, have happened as they went out in the synagogue. There's some tones and patterns even that we read today. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but that mimic or, or, or an example of what would have been said in a synagogue. And Paul opens up talking to the Jewish believers in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, in this section right here. He's bringing it all together. We, us, this and then at the end we saw in verse 13 he switches to say you talking to the entirety of the gentile believers in the church this is important for a number of reasons and i want to try to explain how this all works out a lot of times this passage right here has been taken out of context hasn't been looked at in a, in a literary sense of this follows uh, what a Jewish blessing would be. Uh, this is, uh, follows what a Jewish prayer would be. Uh, there's elements of this that are very uh, Jewish, and it gets messed. And then people start to form ideas about predestination. Look, from the beginning of time, from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through now, election has never been based in faith on individuals. This is where we get a mixed and a twisted doctrine of election or predestination and even reprobation, which means God says, I elect you, I don't elect you, I elect you, I don't elect you, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell, and no one has a choice in between. That is twisted. That is a twisted version of election. It is so important to understand the context in which Paul is talking about the nation of Israel. And then we're going to see how Gentiles are grafted into those blessings. Okay, let's break it down a little bit. Um, can I have, let's see, can I have my friend Zach? Can you come up here, buddy? And then if, um, if someone over here, can you grab that chair for me real quick, Ian? You can grab that chair. And Zach, you're going to be up here for a little bit, so you, you can sit in this chair. Uh, right here. And then, Ian, if you can bring me my basket of surprises. I, I really want to try to explain this in a way that makes sense. Okay. My basket of goods. All right. Okay, so we're going to talk about Israel. See, this is why this is important. I want, to, I want to read a verse for you. In Romans 11, 25 and 26, it says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware. Then Abi says, ignorant 
of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what my plan is for Israel. Today, God does not want you to be ignorant about how he's used his chosen people and how he will continue to use them. That's why we're going through this. This is important. The, the word says, don't be ignorant of these things. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. All right? We're not going to miss it. In Jesus' name, we're not going to miss it. All right. So we're going to talk about uh, Israel and how God chose Israel. We're gonna, I'm going to read a couple passages. And so he chose Israel. We see that happening. We see that happening in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham, his family. He says, you will be the father of many nations because of what's going to happen in salvation through Christ on behalf of your faith uh, right now. So we see that God chooses a certain people. It's a gift. Him choosing Israel is a gift. It's not based on anything they've done. It's not based on their strength or their power. It is based on two things, and we're going to see it. It is based on God's love and God's word. That's it. He gives them the gift of being chosen. Let me read this. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest, some translation says least, of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. So he's saying it's not because you're strong, which Zach is strong. It's not because you're strong or anything you've done or what you can accomplish. It's because the Lord chose to love you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's saying, listen, you were chosen, Israel. You were chosen. Not because I knew you would follow me. Not because I knew you would walk perfectly with me. You were chosen solely based on my love and my word for you. You were chosen. It's a gift. It's a gift that he gave to his people. Does that make sense? Let's look at the next thing. We're, we're, I'm working through the text in Ephesians, but I'm, I'm trying to do it in a way that, that brings it together a little bit. So we saw in, in, uh, in chapter 1, in verse 4, he says, he chose us in him, us is Israel, in him before the foundations of the world. Before anything could ever happen, he chose a people in his love and in his word that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is a language and a picture of the sacrifices that we see in Leviticus. Leviticus 22.20, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish. It will be, not be acceptable for you. You know, it talks about being chosen in 1 Chronicles 16, 13. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Psalm 105.6, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, his chosen ones. It's talking about Israel. If you read Romans 9 through 11, Paul starts his way. It's said that Ephesians is really the pinnacle of Paulina theology, of Paul's theology. 
He works everything in the same way. Look through uh, Romans, look through Ephesians, look in Colossians. He starts with talking about Israel. They were chosen. It goes on to say, not only they were chosen, they were predestined. There's another gift. They were predestined. This is what predestined literally means. Picked in advance or predetermined. Remember, this isn't a person. This is a nation. It's setting the picture for us of what it means to be one man in Christ. They were predestined. That's why it says before the foundations of the earth. Well, they were, they were predestined uh, for what? I, I want to read this real quick. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Write, write this down. This is talking about Israel as well. Same pattern that Paul uses. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Foreknew, we know in Romans eleven two is Israel because it says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? They were the ones who were predestined. He foreknew them. Did you know the firstborn of God is Israel? See, a lot of times I would think the firstborn of God, that's obviously Jesus Christ. God says in his word that the firstborn is Israel. Exodus 4, 22 through 23, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, God's talking to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I see Israel as a son that I chose before the foundations of the earth, that I predestined before the foundations of the earth. Well, what did he predestine Israel for? What did he predestine for? Open up the gift, Israel, and you will see. <laughs> hold that up. Yeah, just hold it just like that. Adoption. He predestined them for adoption. Just hold that like that for a second. Romans 9, 3 and 4 says, For I wish, I could wish that I myself, this is Paul talking, were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's talking about Israel. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. That's how I knew. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 5. So we see the, the gift. He predestined us. That's the gift of predestination. For adoption to himself as sons, right? We just talked about Israel being the firstborn son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us to the beloved. In him, we have the redemption through his blood. So we think predestination. What did he predestine us to do? He predestined Israel to be adopted. I want you to open up this gift, Israel, See how we're breaking this down? Here's the first thing we see. That in adoption is redemption. Hold up the redemption. It is the act of saving or being saved from sin, error, 
and separation. This is where we ask you, have you been redeemed? I want to ask you today, have you been saved from the separation that your sin has caused you in the Lord? That's what it means to be adopted into Christ. And I'm going to talk about how this, this works for all of us in a second. Redemption. When you are adopted into God's family as a son, you have redemption. You are saved from sin and separation. Here's the next thing. You have forgiveness. Look at verse 7 again. This is the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is literally the picture of release from bondage or imprisonment. Did you know that you have been in bondage to your sin? Romans talks about that you were a slave to sin. You had no choice. Your only choice was to follow your sinful desires. Forgiveness is being released from the bondage of that sin, of slavery, by the blood of Jesus Christ. It all comes with being adopted in Christ. We're talking first about Israel. When I talk about Israel, I'm talking about believing Israel. I want to make that caveat. It's always been through believing the words of God. Romans chapter 4 talks about. I'm talking about believing Israel. Here's the next thing. Look at verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We have revelation. Revelation comes with being adopted into a Messiah. Revelation is the gaining of knowledge, or it's literally the picture of something being made naked, being laid bare. Nothing covering that the Lord has said, I have laid bare my plan for you. That comes with being adopted in Messiah. Here's the last thing, unity. It says in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I'm not just talking about unity like, oh no, we get along, we're united. I'm talking about the bonding. The melting of metal and becoming one. That this is what's happening. This is part of God's plan. This is why Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven, there's literally this bonding that's happening. And this revelation of what's going on has first been revealed to Israel. Here's the next thing. It says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. That's the, the third gift that was given. I-N-H stands for inheritance. It was given to Israel. We've obtained the inheritance, having been predestined, referring to the, the previous gift, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, what was their inheritance? There's literally two things. They both point to Christ the entire time, since the beginning. Israel was giving two things as an inheritance that have always pointed to Jesus. The first thing is the Torah, the law. In Deuteronomy 33, 4, I'm going to read it in the CJB. It says, the Torah Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the community, or in the ESV it says the assembly of Jacob. The Torah, the law, has always pointed to Jesus Christ. It has always pointed to Jesus Christ. It continues to point to Jesus Christ. 
I've given this to my people as a gift. That they would know the Messiah, that they would know the plan of redemption. How are they going to know that? Through their inheritance, the Torah, which points to Jesus. Here's the second thing, the land. I want to suggest that this is pointing to the kingdom of God that is found in Christ. It says in Exodus 6, 8, I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will give it to you as your inheritance. I am Adonai. I've given you the law which points to Christ. I've given you the land which points to the kingdom. I've given you all these things, Israel. You were my firstborn son. The inheritance belongs to the firstborn. But hey, Gentiles, there's good news. You ready for good news? For all the non-Jewish people here, you ready for good news? Okay. Give me one more minute. Romans 11, 28 and 29 says this. But as regards to election... Okay, talking about this whole choosing Israel. This is, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. See, a lot of times we've put like a charismatic spin on this, and we say like, yeah, the gifts of God are irrevocable. That's talking about spiritual gifts. No, those are all the gifts that God gave to Israel. What it's saying is that this isn't, there's no such thing as a replacement theology. That the church didn't come in, rip off Israel's hat, put it on, grab their gifts, and take them away. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And thank God that is the case. Because if it wasn't, our God would not be a God of his word. Israel has been blessed. But just as when one part of the body is blessed, we're all blessed. If one part of your physical body is blessed, if, if you're gaining strength or you, you have a talent, your whole body is blessed. It's time that we celebrate the blessings that we receive in the Lord together. It says this, we're going to get to our part in just a second. It says in verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, this is Romans 1.16, that says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This was prophesied, and I'm not going to read it in Jeremiah 31.31, 31, that the new covenant was for the people of Israel first. That's why he says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be able to praise of his glory. In him, you also, you see the pronoun flip in verse 13? In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. So you heard, you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, pronoun now, our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The NLT says it very clear, the NLT version. It says God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles who have also heard the truth. And it says now these things because now we get to partake in the blessings that he first established with Israel. It's like this. Paul, can you come up here? 
So now Paul, who's a Gentile, gets to go over and share in everything that God poured out to Israel. He gets to share in, in, in the chosenness. He gets to share in the kingdom. He gets to share in the adoption. He gets to share in the inheritance. And how do we know this? Because verse 13 says that he has the Holy Spirit, which is the seal, the mark of authority, the mark of ownership, the same seal that was first given to Israel. We get to share in it together. That's the point that Paul is making. He's saying this was first given to us, but now we get to share in this thing together. Let's not let this divide us. Let's celebrate this. Let's celebrate God's goodness and his faithfulness to his, his word and his faithfulness to his own love for a people who turned their back on him in many ways at many times. Let's celebrate this together. You guys can sit down. He's saying, don't let this be a divide, dividing wall in between us any longer. Let's share in the blessings. Because when one part of the body is blessed, the entire body is blessed. That's what he's talking about. I want to ask you, do you celebrate the blessings of other believers in your life? That when someone else gets healed, maybe the healing that you've been waiting for, do you celebrate with them as though it was you? Many people know I have, a, I have an insane dairy allergy that the Lord will heal and take away for, I've had it gone for a day or two, and then it's come back, and I've gone in and out. I've prayed for people with more severe allergies who have been healed and never have gone back ever. But guess what? I'm going to celebrate with them as though that was my situation. Because I'm telling you what, when one part of the body is blessed, the whole body is blessed. Do you celebrate when people have success or fruitfulness in the kingdom? Do you celebrate as maybe you were waiting for that next position? You've been feeling like God is getting you ready for a task, and then you see someone step in to a greater role of responsibility or a greater role of leadership. Do you celebrate with them as though it was you? You think about marriage or relationship. Maybe you've been longing for a relationship. You've been longing to get married over and over and over. And, and you see someone else then come into a relationship and get married. Do you celebrate as though it was you? I know when we begin to have the mindset of celebration like this. That we are going to be unified in a way this world has never seen. That when it talks about being bound together, that the Lord unites all things, all people, all places. That we're going to walk with a unity, I'm telling you, that this world has never seen. And it's going to start with celebrating as though it was us receiving the blessing. I want you to think, get really practical today. Is there someone that maybe you've been jealous toward for a blessing that they received and you haven't? Maybe it's for a child. Maybe it's for a possession. Maybe it's for a breakthrough. Maybe it's for a deliverance. Maybe it's for an anointing. We're going to come back to what to do with that in a little bit. 
but I'm telling you, if we can have the mindset that we celebrate as though it was us, because we're one body, we're one man and Messiah, it is us, this world is never going to be the same. All right, that's talking about celebrate blessings. Let's talk about raising up equals a little bit. What we see here, after Paul goes through talking about the Jews who believe in Yeshua, Messiah, now bring in the Gentiles of, yeah, we have the same inheritance because of the seal that is on us, and that he's not talking that there's this uh, reference that we're going to see play back and forth. He's not talking about the reference of circumcision. That was the seal that they saw. Now it's the seal of the Holy Spirit, what we bear in unity together. And he goes on to encourage the Gentiles, the Gentile believers. So we're one man. I'm, I'm not only going to celebrate the blessings and show us how to do that, but I want to encourage you. I'm telling you, encouragement is the first step in raising up an equal. Encouragement is the first step in raising someone up to walk beside you in the kingdom. Are you an encouraging person? We're going to see what, exactly what that looks like. I want to read verse 15. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, see the distinction of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, bringing everyone together, us who believe, our belief is what unites us, he's saying, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We're going to pause there. You want to know what the worst thing about Sunday is? Chick-fil-A being closed. I don't know what it is. Every, every Sunday after church, I'm like, you know, because you always say, like, what do you want for lunch? What do you want for lunch? What do you want for lunch? I'm like, I want Chick-fil-A. So I brought encouragement to you in the form of a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Okay. The pickle of hope. chicken of value, the buns of encouragement. I promise this isn't just a gimmick. It is a little bit, but Paul, in verse 15, really through 23, is serving up an encouragement sandwich. And I know we're talking about it in a, in, a, in a silly way, but what if we had the mindset of, <laughs> this is going to sound so weird, of we're carrying around an extra Chick-fil-A sandwich, and it's Sunday, and we're just going to start dishing out encouragement sandwiches to people. And, and, and I know it sounds silly, but I, I mean that like in... In such a heartfelt way, I think that we miss sometimes loving each other with a directness 
of encouragement. Of actually sitting down face to face and telling someone, I want to encourage you. And then just start speaking encouragement. We had a conversation uh, not too long ago about well, what is encouragement. We're at a home group. Uh, what is godly encouragement? I, I don't think it's limited to this. But I just want to point out the pattern that Paul uses. And I'm telling you, this is so important as we're trying to raise up equals with us in the kingdom. To start with encouragement. Do you see how he opens it? He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, he's encouraging them of what they're doing in Christ. That's where he starts. He's encouraging them about the, the, themselves and what they're doing, but in Christ. Not just out in the world. He's saying, I see you doing these things. When is the last time you've just taken notice and started encouraging people of what you've seen in their life? I've seen this in you. I've seen the way you love people. I've seen your compassion. I've seen the way that you've been able to uh, help people make decisions uh, that, that are godly and good. I've seen the way that you encourage people in the Lord, in the Word of God. He starts with encouraging the person of what they're doing. And then he moves on to value. He says this line that I think is so powerful. He says, I give thanks. He says this often in his letters, I give thanks to you. As I remember you in my prayers in 2 Timothy, he says, I give thanks to you night and day through tears. Do you tell people face to face that you are thankful for them? Not for what they do, for who they are to you. I see what you're doing. I encourage you in that. Let me, I just want to show you how much I value you as a person. The next thing we see, he, he talks about gaining in wisdom, revelation, and experiencing and moving in the resurrection power. In verse 18, he gives them a hope. My hope is, and he encourages them literally in how to move forward. What he sees in them and how they can move forward in this. And the last thing, he encourages them. This is probably the most powerful part in who Christ is. He's like, you can do all this because of who Christ is. And he says... That he who worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. This comes from Psalm 110.1. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Seated at the right hand, this is the Messiah to whom is given the power and authority to subdue his enemies. He's encouraging this church. This is who Christ is. So I want to encourage you in something. Many of you are very good at doing this already. And it is literally changing the culture of our church. The way we encourage people. Don't stop. Look for new people to encourage. Christ wants to show his glory through the love of his people. So today, although Chick-fil-A may be closed, pull out your encouragement sandwich and serve it to somebody. Don't send a text. I want you to do it to somebody's face today. We're talking about how to be one body in Christ. I guarantee if you were going to be with a personal trainer and you were going to start to just talk negatively about yourself over and over and over and over and over and how weak you are and how you can't perform and how you can't lift anything anymore, 
that mindset is going to start messing with your body, and I guarantee you'll be able to not lift quite as much as if you're speaking life in yourself. There are power in our words. There are power in our words. Serve someone an encouragement sandwich today. Amen. Everyone's smiling. It's fun. It's fun. And it's deep. And it's fried in buttermilk. So, he goes into, we're going we're gonna to keep moving on about building up equals. Because this is, uh, I want you to touch your head right now. And say, remember. You can say it out loud. Remember. Austin, you're not touching your head right now, bro. There you go. Christ. Seated at the right hand of God. Double tap. Hand down. Okay. We're coming back to that. Chapter 2. We're going to continue to move forward. We're talking about raising up equals. See, it's easy to to want to raise up someone who's just below you, right? This is every dad's dream. I'm going to teach my kids all the wrestling moves I know except for a few so that I can always have something in the tank. You know what I mean? The issue is when this gets related to the kingdom, I want to show people how to impart and how to fill people and pray for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how to move forward in faith and pray for miracles, except this one little area I kind of want to reserve for myself so I still have something special. That doesn't exist in one body. It does not exist. We give everything to everyone. One of my favorite stories, and we have a... a, entrepreneurial class coming up July 14th. Uh, we have some, uh, Elder Mark is going to be speaking at that a little bit. Uh, so some other friends from other churches are going to be coming in to speak about that. And uh, Pastor Slaughter is going to be speaking ab- about that a little bit. Uh, th- I love this story about when he used to work at State Farm. Um, he would talk about how all the agents were like, with all their secrets, like how they would get clients, how they would get leads, and they'd be like this. But Nick would just be open and out there and show them every little thing that he would do. Just wide open. It was mind-blowing to people. Like, Why would you tell me that? He's like, I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. See, that's how we need to interact with one another in the kingdom. We need to teach people how to fan into flame the gifts of God which are in us and to use them to further, not worrying about if someone is going to have a greater name than us. Not worrying if someone's going to have more influence than, than us. We are literally looking to raise people up, not just below us, but right next to us. We are raising equals. He moves on to tell about the testimony. This is, I want you to think right now, this is a good uh, construct really for how to, to share a testimony. He says in chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Everyone say Satan. That's Satan, the adversary. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want to speak plainly to you today because the word speaks plainly. If you are not in Christ, if you are not in Messiah, you are dead in your sins and following after the ways of Satan. It's what the word says. 
Sometimes we want to water things down and say, well, it's, it's not that they're not following Satan. It's that, you know, they're, they're a good person. They just don't believe in Christ. What the Word of God says. Look down with me one more time. You were dead in the trespasses of your sins and sins. That your spirit was dead. If you are not in Christ, if you haven't chosen to believe and to respond to Christ, your spirit is dead in sin. It says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, you're not just dead in sin, you are following Satan. It's the spirit of the world. It's the spirit of the generation. It's what we're fighting against. Either you're in the kingdom of God and advancing the kingdom of God, or you're in the kingdom of Satan and advancing the kingdom of Satan. And I, I want you to hear me because it's hard to receive something like this. But there are only two ways. There are only two choices. I'm going to choose to submit myself to the Holy Spirit, to the Ruach HaKodesh of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, or I'm going to walk in the way of the adversary and submit my life to the spirit of the world, the spirit and the flow of Satan. There are only two choices. There's not a middle ground. There's not a third choice back here in the corner. You are for him or you're against him. There is no middle. It says if you're in that place where you're following the prince of the power of the air, which we said is Satan, that you are by nature a child of wrath. That the only thing for you, saved up for you, is the wrath of God. But listen, I'm telling you right now, that is not his desire for you. The Lord wants you to come into his love. Because look what it says. But God, in verse 4, being rich in mercy. How many people are thankful that our God is rich in mercy? He is literally rich in not giving us what we deserve. He's rich in it. He has an abundance of it. He's like, I desire to not give you what you actually deserve. Why? Why would he do that? Look on. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Okay, remember, tap your head again. Jesus was raised up with God. Jesus said at the right hand of God. We just read about that a little bit ago. Does anyone remember? Remember doing this thing? Now look what it says. That when we are in Christ, it says, and he raised us up and seated us with him. This isn't something that's going to happen. This is something that has already happened. We are already ruling with Christ. We already have power and authority that Christ established. It is ours. We are free to move in that. In the same place he was seated, he didn't just leave us down there. He's like, no, I'm raising you up with me to rule and reign with me. That's what I want for you. 
Salvation isn't just fire insurance. It's not just saying, I'm good, okay, now I don't have to worry about going to hell. He's saying, I'm raising you up into a completely new life with me. It's not separated. It's not some deistic sense of God reigning and ruling somewhere and leaving us down here to fend for ourselves. He's saying, I want to partner with you arm in arm as we advance the kingdom of light together. Even when we are dead, he raised us up. Why? Why did he do that? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show how the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. What a beautiful word. It's this idea of a gift, a free gift that we didn't deserve. Grace here is also this idea of power. Salvation, it's power in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's like, I, there's nothing, there's nothing that you can do to earn this. Just like Israel at the beginning of time, it wasn't because they were mighty. It wasn't because they were great. It wasn't because they were impressive. It was because of my love for them. I gave them all these gifts. Listen, it's the same thing for us. There's nothing we can do. There's no laws or rules that we can follow to gain right standing with Christ. There's nothing. But he said, it's because of my love for you, because of my kindness, that I want to give you this free gift of salvation. Not not because then it was based out of your works, but so that you can do my works. So you can experience transcendence, so you can be a part of something bigger than yourself. So you can know what it's like to be set free from sin, free from bondage, free from patterns. So you can walk in the newness of life. It's a gift. There's nothing you could do to earn it just from like the same from the beginning of time. It's based on my love for you. It's based on my love for you. It's a free gift. We see Jesus raising up an equal. We see the Right now when Paul's saying this, it's this double thing where he's showing the Gentiles that they are also equal in Christ. Saying, hey, the the same stuff that we went through as Jews, you guys went through as well in Christ. This is how it all works. So he's, Paul's right now as a Jew is raising up the Gentiles. We're equals in the kingdom because we've experienced the same things because it's, it's Christ. And he's showing that Jesus set that example by raising us up to rule and reign with him. Do you see that? How two avenues of raising equals are happening right there? Here's the last thing. Destroying hostility. If we want to be one man, if we want to function as one body, one man in Messiah, we have to destroy the hostility that comes between us. We have to destroy it. I want, you to, I want to show you a picture of the temple. This is a, a picture of Herod's temple. Uh, it's important to know that this uh, project really began, this is after the destruction of Solomon's temple in about 20 to 19 BC. It was finished in 63 AD, which is important because this is right around, uh, this is the same time this book was written, Ephesians was written. The temple is being finished at the same time 
Ephesians is being written. So it's fresh on everyone's minds. Even though they were in Ephesus, they would have known about all these things. Everyone say, fresh on the mind. It was fresh on their mind. The temple. I want to read something about the temple. It says, Herod proposed to renovate the temple in 20 to 19 BC. His reason being post, uh, for the post-exile temple uh, was 60 cubits shorter than Solomon's original, so he wanted to reconfigure. Despite the Jews' fears that he meant to tear it down and forget to rebuild, the main work on the temple was completed one and a half years later and the uh, outer courtyard in eight years. So something was added. Finishing touches continued until A.D. 63. Started a project, finished it real quick, added some more things, outer courtyards. It was all pretty much tied together and complete by 63 A.D., the time when Ephesians was written. Let me read verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by which what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, that can seem very confusing. I'm going to read it one more time in NLT. It says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Did you know at the beginning of time, when the tabernacle was established, when the temple uh, was established, that there was a way for outsiders or a Gentile to come in to worship God? That if they wanted to celebrate feast, they could do this. Well, something had to happen. They had to be, according to Exodus 12, they had to be circumcised first. But then there would be no difference, and they could come in, and they could participate in all these things, and they would be a Gentile, but they would be participating and have access to God, just the way the Jews did. What Paul is saying here in verse 11 is that don't forget of what used to happen. He's saying, don't forget that there used to be this process of circumcision for everyone to have access to God. And don't forget, Jews, that this just became a mark on your body and didn't change your heart. See, it's playing off what we saw in, in Ephesians 1.13 a little earlier when he's talking about now being sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's like, you may have had the mark on your body. He's like, but the issue was the mark wasn't on your heart. Now we have complete access together through the mark, which is the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 12, Remember that you were at one time, he's talking to the Gentiles again, so he's saying, listen, you didn't have respect by the Jews, that's the first thing in verse 11. Remember that you were time you were separated from Christ, saying that you had no Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It's like you had no citizenship. You weren't part of the citizenship of God. The ways of life with God. You weren't a part of that. And you were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no promise. You had no respect, no Messiah, no citizenship, no covenant. Well, what else? Having no hope. And without God in this world, you had no hope and you had no God. So don't forget, this is the place you've been. We can all think of the time when this was our reality. When we were far from Christ. We had no hope. We had no God. We had no salvation. We had no way out of the bondage until Jesus Christ. That was the turning point. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down, excuse me, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by the abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to explain this. What we see is that you can bring Herod's temple up one more time. You see that big uh, circle pointing out that wall right there? The sword, a low lattice screen or railing, prohibited Gentiles or non-purified Jews from entering the temple courts. This is what it's referring to. He's using temple imagery for this entire section. This is what he's referring to when he's talking about the wall of hostility. That there was a wall that was constructed that kept Gentiles separated from Jewish believers. This wall was never instructed by God. If you look through the construction of the tabernacle, uh, we see uh, there's a uh, court for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, and then there's a special place for the priest. You see the same thing in the construction of the temple. But there's never a designation of you're a Gentile believer, you're a Jewish believer. You're a Gentile believer, you're a Jewish believer. But when Herod built this temple, this got thrown into the mix. There was a sign up you can bring up a picture of the stone sign. There was a sign up that was written in Greek that was placed on here. There's another picture of it as well. And this is what it says in Greek so that the Gentiles could read it. It says, No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. Here is a line... Do not cross this line. It is a fence. Don't come near. Not instructed by God. Do not come near. That's what he's talking about when Paul says the dividing wall of hostility. He then goes on, that's verse 14. He goes on to say this in verse 15. This is one of those verses that has been twisted because of a lack of understanding of the context of the verse that came before it. It says in verse 15, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. I'm going to read it in the complete Jewish Bible. It helps give us a, a little different picture. It says, For he himself is our shalom. He has made us both one and has broken down the wall of hostility which divided us. By destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah with its commandments set forth in the form of ordinances. He did this in order to create in union with himself from two groups a single new humanity and thus make shalom. See, a lot of times this verse has been taken out of context and said, look, he's abolishing the law right here. Well, here's the problem. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. So what is he talking about? What is he actually talking about? This is literally what it means. That we have commands. We have the Torah. The words of God. The instruction 
Remember, we talked about at the beginning, the Torah that points to Christ. This Torah was a wall for living, for, for separation from the beginning of time. This is what's godly. This is what's not godly. This is what's godly. This is not what's godly. The law is holy and perfect, we see in the Word. The issue, and what they're talking about, about these ordinances and about the laws and commands, the issue was Pharisees, other Jewish leaders, established commands of commands. See what I'm saying? They established, this is how you are to live out what the Torah says. You have to look like this. You have to do this. This is how you should do Sabbath. I'm giving you a command about how to live out the actual written command. You have to do this, and then do this, and then don't do this. You have to do this, and you don't do this, and you don't do this. And what happened was, the command of commands began producing enmity or hatred. Caused, that's why it says caused by the Torah. Backed by the Torah, people put commands on top of it. They put a fence around it. The same picture, bring up the temple one more time. The same picture of the fence, the wall of hostility between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Torah being in the middle, there was a fence put around it that caused even more hostility. Do you see the image of the temple mixed with what he's saying about the Torah? He's saying this is what physically happened that caused a division between us and Christ. And this is how it was actually played out. The commands were given on top of commands. And when Gentiles would come in, they wouldn't know how to adhere to all these things and how to come into these things that were made up by man. It's not that the Torah was wrong or bad. It was that the commands that were placed as a fence around it were not from the Lord. And in doing so, enmity was caused. And it caused separation. He says in verse 16, so that one new person would be born and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, which they would have been treated like in the temple, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grown into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. We have to destroy walls of hostility that we have put up between us. In order to become one man in Messiah, one person in the body of Christ, we have to destroy the walls of hostility that lie between us. Like I said earlier, this might be because someone's being blessed in a different way than you. Maybe the wall of hostility that you've set up is competition in the kingdom. How can I be more fruitful? How can I do more? How can I do this? How can I do this? Am I doing this more than this person is doing this? And comparing ourselves to those who are around us. Maybe there's a wall of hostility that you set up and you're not letting people in because of fear, because of pride. Have you ever closed someone out of your life purposely? 
I was at Chick-fil-A. I go there, like, all the time, obviously, uh, a few days ago, and there's a homeless man in the parking lot, and he runs up to my car, and I, I'll give homeless people rides. Usually, I don't really mind, but his opening statement was so alarming. He said, <laughs> he runs up to my car, and he says, let me in the car, pimp. Not today, playa. And there was this like alarming like sense and awkwardness of now I was once sure about this and now I'm like not really sure about this. I'm just going to go home and sorry I can't help. And see what happens sometimes when we interact with people in the kingdom, part of the one body, we're struck in a way that causes us to start creating distance. And in that place, walls of hostility start to rise up. Bitterness starts to become a wall or offense of hostility. Offense starts to become a wall of hostility. Fear. Customs begin to become a wall of hostility. But Christ is saying, I'm uniting you by one spirit so that you can move forward in unity. I want you to walk as one man in Messiah. Celebrate. How are we going to do this? We're going to celebrate the blessings of others. We're going to raise up equals. We're going to destroy hostility. That's how we're going to do it together. So I just want to invite everyone to stand.